Most investors feel comfortable with their domestic equity and bond portfolios because they tend to thrive during periods of economic growth and low inflation. And we don't blame you. It's been a great ride. But it's a big world out there, full of opportunities you may be ignoring. Sadly, we live in a world dominated by a fear of missing out, or FOMO. And in the last 10 years, U.S. equities and bonds have outperformed and generated massive amounts of FOMO. This hasn't always been the case. In the mid-2000s, the best-performing markets were international equities, especially emerging markets, gold and commodities. So what happens if growth collapses and inflation becomes the new norm? Or what if the U.S. dollar collapses and U.S. assets are no longer attractive? What will the new FOMO markets be? And will your portfolio keep up or be left behind? Enter Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund, ticker RDMIX, a strategy that is designed to thrive across different markets and economic regimes. Unlike most traditional strategies that keep allocation static and let volatility happen, Adaptive Asset Allocation applies a proprietary systematic process designed to dynamically transition toward thriving asset classes and eliminate those that are not, all the while aiming for consistent volatility and stable returns. There's almost always a bull market somewhere in the world. Don't let yesterday's FOMO get in the way of tomorrow's opportunities. Instead, let Adaptive Asset Allocation help you fill in your domestic portfolio gaps. To learn more, visit RationalMF.com and check out the Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo are principals of Resolve Asset Management Global. Due to industry regulations, no funds managed or subdivised by the host will be discussed in this podcast. All opinions expressed by the host are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. I was picturing Jem going into small spasms as he heard words, consistent (laughs) volatility and stable returns. <laughs> um, Mike, it's all that easy. I know, right? Mike, you want to do your spiel? Oh, yeah, right. Sorry. Yeah, this is not investment advice. By God, don't get investment advice at YouTube on four o'clock on a Friday, especially an expiration <laughs> Friday. <laughs> so it's for interesting. Even if it is from Jen. Only. Yeah. <laughs> this is advice. I don't give advice. advice. Yeah, precisely. Yeah, right. No advice, just entertainment. That's right. There we go. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. I'm going to, I'm going to lead off this time before Richard jumps in here. Cause I, I want to, I want to sort of set the, set the table with, um, with an agenda. Right. So may, I, what I'd love to do actually today is kind of talk about where we are right now. Like what has happened over the last few months has been a, it's been a really weird choppy kind of market environment. Um, I think it was for many of us a lot, clearer what was happening earlier in the year and and the last three four months has been a a grind a chop up a down and um so i have a feeling that a lot of that might be due to microstructure effects as the macro picture has has become a little bit more ambiguous right so i'd love to sort of get your perspective on 
what are you seeing kind of right now? What are the, where are the pressures building right now in the short term? How would you interpret the behavior that we've seen in markets over the last three, four months, this sort of what I kind of characterize as a consolidation period? And, uh, and then maybe we can, we can look forward. We can use the, the crystal ball a little bit and um, get into your broader macro framework, which, which I've heard a couple of times. I know you've, got, you've added to it over time. So I'm, I'm definitely keen to explore that. But let's, let's deal with the short term first. So, so what are you seeing right now? Yeah, so <clears throat> um, the word seasonality for it makes people feel differently, right? So people are think of like how could something as be that simple? How could uh, just uh, a calendar changing have any correlation to help what the market should do? And um, and the reality is, I'm I'm here to tell you that it matters, and it doesn't matter for the reason just because it's time on a map. It's because um, we have a uh, different uh, amount of time, calendar days, actually. Uh, Volume-weighted time uh, is very different during different types uh, times of the, the year. Uh, what I mean by volume-weighted time is, you know, around the holidays, there's just not a lot of people trading, so there's just not as much volume. Uh, um, so when you have less time, that means uh, option premium decays faster. Uh, when you have less liquidity uh, sitting on the other side, of flows that are consistently the same size, if not growing, right? There's an imbalance in markets. Um, and these lead to structural uh, effects during calendar periods. There's other parts to seasonality as well. That's not all of it, but that is an important piece of that equation. And so um, here we are in a very seasonally powerful time. Uh, and those Bona and Charm flows you hear me talk so much about are accelerated during this period. Um, they're also accentuated because we're on a higher vol. So if you're sitting on a 30 vol, there's a lot more potential energy sitting behind that. Uh, there's a lot, a lot of short interest out there, right? Which we all know about. Um, and so, you know, we talked about it very vocally uh, a week and a half, two weeks ago um, on several platforms, but, you know, a dangerous time to be short. Um, very, very uh, high potential energy for uh, upside move. Um, and as we all know, as things start to get going, uh, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a chase, right? People can't underperform into an up market, and that only makes things worse. Um, so to see this kind of move on a Friday uh, in this window, not a surprise. Um, uh, so on top of that, there's another important effect is that we're going into midterms. Uh, where we have a Fed meeting coming up in a couple of days. Um, we uh, have a CPI meeting, a CPI uh, outcome coming again here short in a short period of time. And all that's clustered around a very small window of time. Um, and so if you go were to go look at the SPX uh, options uh, and, and look at where the implied vols are for those events relative to the things around it, you would see there's a massive event vol priced in for that period. Um, event vol itself is potential energy, right? Um, that means dealers are short a higher vol, and in those, uh, they 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 brought lots lower vols around it to kind of offset it and to, to to give themselves risk protection. But that's where their short interest is. So as that comes down, that's more potential energy upside. We've seen this. You've heard me probably talk about it. Brexit at the 2016 Trump election, at the 2020 contested election, all three of those were major event falls. 
all three of them had the worst case scenario, what the market was most feared about happen, right? Whether you agree that it should have been a risk. Yeah, yeah. Talk about the macro. Like all three of those were the worst case scenario for the expected risk. And all of them resulted in a powerful move to the upside, a relief rally. That's event vol at work. That's the bonnet charm flows uh, that come from, from that, that impulse at work. Um, and, and largely, is that from the market makers kind of because the participants were already largely hedged for those events, the, the uh, realization of those events uh, forces a lot of these dealers to, to impose their own gravitational force in markets? That's a way to put it. I, I, would, um, I would put it in slightly different, uh, a different form. Um, not that that's incorrect. It's just a, a slightly different perspective. When the vol goes high enough because people are buying, that makes the hurdle higher and higher for the move that needs to happen in order for those dealers who are short those and hedged against them, takes the hurdle higher for some, what, what has to happen. And so when that worst case doesn't happen, then that forces a buyback. It's kind of a game of chicken, but that bar is so high, the odds are very low, no matter how bad the event is. Like we, we pointed to the worst case uh, events happening, yet the bar was so high uh, that when it didn't, that, that when the market didn't make that move to the extreme amount that, that you know, would have necessitated a kind of a gamma squeeze to the downside, the result, the result is an opposite. Once that gets going, it just feeds on itself. So, um, so yes, nuance similar to what you're saying, but, uh, but, but um, a little different. So two, two questions then to follow up. When does this sort of stronger seasonality period flip typically? And, um, and second, going into uh, Brexit, Trump, 2020 election, maybe less the 2020 election, but certainly Brexit, Trump type events. The I think the positioning by hedgers was strongly to the downside, right? Everyone was hedging for downside risk. Coming into the midterms, are you are you seeing people um, hedging and and into the the November CPI? Are you seeing people hedging upward vol, downward vol, or or both? And you know where could the squeezes happen there? <clears throat> yeah. So. Um, fairly well documented that uh, skew is in the zeroth percentile in the equity indexes right now. So um, there is less uh, put hedging broadly, but that said um, institutions uh, almost exclusively right by protection to the downside. Uh, they, they, they're fairly, yes, they'll spec like there are entities that will speculate um, and buy calls uh, to speculate, but hedging activity you know, structured products, uh, you know, long ball hedges um, are to the downside. Um, and, and so, um, so that, that, that Vana charm effect is almost always on the index level uh, structured buyback as vol comes down. Um, it may be a bit diminished, um, you know, uh, in this environment, because as, I, as we mentioned, there's, there's maybe less uh, put skew demand recently uh, because of the underperformance of the ass, you know, of, of those hedges, et cetera. But there's still hedges, particularly for that window relative to the stuff around it. So, okay. And, and just let's address the, if you don't mind, the seasonality flip as well. It's uh, before we, cause I have a couple of, I apologize. That's right. Yeah. So, no, that's good. Yeah. <clears throat> so, um, there are several other aspects of seasonality in a normal year. That's why it's a bit more nuanced, right. Um, in an up year, uh, there's just reinvestment of, 
of returns. Uh, if you uh, think about uh, U.S. equities are about 40 trillion, uh, global equities about 80 trillion or so, global long assets somewhere around 400 trillion, including commodities, real estate, um, bonds, etc. Um, all of these assets in years that the assets go up, which is most years, uh, you know, let's say assets go up 20% in a year or 10%, let's say that's a $40 trillion that needs to go to work in, in a world that a hundred billion uh, is, is the kind of the incremental amount that moves markets. It's a massive amount. Now that doesn't all come in Jan 1, right? It's, it's incremental throughout the year, but Jan 1 is an important date. Um, and a, a lot of this Santa Claus rally and January effect, the two, that, that month is the most bullish month um, of the year by far. Um, uh, so, so those effects in a two and up market are generally a market worth uh, assets in general, increase in value and generate cash flow. And, you know, uh, it, it creates a, a new, a bit of a push at the end of the year. We're in a bit different scenario this year, right? Markets are down, assets are not largely up. So that part of the seasonality will be less pronounced. And you could argue even potentially have a bit of a negative um, effect this year as you get back into the late December, early January. Um, but uh, but the current but yet those Vana charm flows is going to be a bit more accentuated as we mentioned. So there's a bit uh, as you get towards the back half of the year. You know, it remains to be seen here. But when I back half, I mean the, the back half of December. I apologize into January um, uh, is is a bit a bit more muddy. Um, so we're, we're going to say uh, we'll see. Um, but I would say up until mid December, uh, really up until that December opex. Um, uh, really, maybe that Wednesday before uh, you know, the expiration um, of, of these opex there um, would be uh, largely kind of in my in our mind the the minimum kind of time frame with which we'd expect this to uh, accelerate. Now, obviously, these are flows. This, this is not the whole story. Uh, if the nuclear bomb goes off in New York City, uh, China invades Taiwan, whatever it is, right? That stuff matters. Um, and I'm not sitting here saying that, uh, you know, this is all that matters. This is, you know, you can just map it out. This is what's going to happen, right? Uh, these flows interact with the real world and, and what else is going on and what changes in that world in terms of flows and other factors. But uh, in, in terms of pure flows and structural effects, um, all, thing, all things created equal, that would be kind of the most positive time frame in this window, in my opinion. In terms and of the very- um, positioning around the CPI events the last mm-hmm. few months. It's been a really um, consistent pattern where market seems to, to sort of rally uh, into the CPI. People kind of get excited about the prospects of a more dovish number. Maybe the day before CPI, if they begin to sort of sell off a little bit, CPI hits and then they crater, right? right. And so I'm just wondering, are we observing, are you observing sort of a um, more of a positioning effect where there's, there's still um, a lot of bullish underlying, say, retail sentiment that are positioning in maybe individual positions coming into these more sort of FOMO sentiment oriented um, flows, speculating on, you know, a, a, a V recovery at some point when... CPI begins to roll over, and is and, and it's, so are we sort of seeing the opposite effect of what we saw 
historically during the sort of Brexit and, and Trump um, type events, right? Where people were like speculatively overly bullish and then, and then we, had, we went the other direction. Yeah, no, that's, I think, a, a very astute point. Um, yeah, I think you can't underestimate the importance, and this has been true for a couple of years now, uh, of, of uh, retail and speculative activity in this market. Uh, one day to expiration options um, have completely exploded in the S&P 500. Um, they are now the majority of the volume in those products um, on, on most days, not all days, but on most days. Um, and that's all speculative directional trades um, that can, that has secondary effects, as many people know, gamma feedback loops, et cetera, that can uh, become self-fulfilling prophecies, right, um, in, in these markets. Um, uh, on top of that, uh, you know, what's driving that? Uh, the same thing that drove it in 2020. Uh, people, everybody thinks, uh, you know, we actually had a, had a little exchange today on Twitter about this, uh, Meb Faber and I. But um, the reality is that uh, your average median person uh, is, has much more money in their balance sheets. Mm-hmm. Uh, despite markets not performing well, um, you know, people are getting inflows because they're getting late wages are going up. They're getting, uh, you know, some type of whether it's debt forgiveness or other things are getting uh, support from government. Um, and so a lot of that money is going into speculative activity still in the markets. Um, and now add to that, that markets are down and yields are up. Uh, there's a perceived, this is a good opportunity to kind of put money back to work much better than it was a year ago. And, uh, and, and uh, you get significant inflows from retail. Um, if you draw a graph uh, against, um, you know, drawdowns in the market for the last 40 years, uh, and you look at flows from retail, right? They're usually at this point dramatically negative. Yes. They're, they're going out the door. And that's quite the opposite in this market. We're actually seeing consistent positive inflows, uh, significant, right, uh, from, from retail and, and, and broadly uh, mom and pop. Um, and again, that's that demand side economics at work. We haven't seen that for 40 years. Um, that's what led to kind of that speculative uh, kind of the meme craze and the the blow off top we kind of saw up to forty eight hundred last you know last couple of years, um, but it's still alive and well underneath this market. And so if it wasn't for that, I think there'd be a, a lot worse kind of uh, kind of flows and, and things would have uh, you know had had a much bigger problems. Um, so important to note that that is ha- playing a significant role in these kind of spikes up, you know, squeezing of the shorts, uh, which are tend to be hedge funds with with retail still kind of piling in and, and not just retail meaning mom and pop, but also speculative entities that are riding on the back of some of this, um, these flows as well. Um, so that's definitely playing a significant role and part of why Realize Vol has been much higher to the upside of the downside and why not surprisingly skew is flattening because guess what? Uh, calls are really where you want the, the vol exposure in this, in this market. Um, and to your final point, uh, that we kind of refer to this briefly, but you know, when skew is flatter and people are more broadly into calls than puts, then some of this decay, right? At least in parts of the market, um, uh, these Vana charm effects can actually go the other way. Um, I, uh, you know, my personal opinion is those Vana charm flows on a structural index level are still very are still consistently positive, but um, given a b- bad piece of news which CPI has broadly been bad every single 
time so far, um, uh, you know, given a balance of power that's much more balanced, um, that can lead to, uh, you know, uh, the opposite effect, as you mentioned. Yeah, I mean, there's still $1.5 trillion in excess savings. Um, you know, there was, there was $2.7 trillion in excess savings about a year ago from just government's firehosing money directly into, into bank accounts, so $1.5 trillion. And, and so that's still a lot of excess spending power. And as you say, some of that is definitely finding its way into, into speculation. And do you think that it's, you know, some of this at least is just a conditioning of the, the buy the dip mentality that, that uh, retail has, you know, was pounded into them through experience over the last kind of decade. It's just going to take a while for that knee-jerk reaction um, behavior to play itself out? Yeah, I think people, if you say to your average person, I don't know if it's a knee-jerk reaction as much, I mean, you could call it that, but if you say to your average person, uh, how do you invest? Invest, the word invest means you buy assets to people. Um, that, that's just this passive uh, you know, thing that everybody's been taught. And uh, you know, that's what investing is, you buy assets. Um, that wasn't the case prior to equities, right? Equities it's, prim- it's, primarily. It's, yeah. They're bonds equity. too now, but like, uh, yes, I agree. I agree. Um, this idea of, uh, active management or, you know, relative value, you know, is, is much more nuanced and, and what broadly worked from 68 to 82 when the market went nowhere, for example, prior to this period when we were in a demand push economy, which again, this is now the, the bigger broad, uh, picture uh, conversation that we you referenced before, but but that type of a that type of a market, um, which can be a very strong economy, uh, you know, passive investment doesn't work. Uh, just putting your money, uh, set it and forget it, dollar cost averaging, right by the dip, that stuff uh, does not does not work, and 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 that broadly is confusing to people who grew up grown up in the last forty years. It's not just this last 10, 20 years. It's just what investing has become and what people believe it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, well, don't, don't you think there's also the, we have to remember the last 10 years has been sort of accentuated by a zero savings rate. And I think that has set up this ha- habit where they are, I think generally investors who let's call them the retail side have been conditioned to buy the dip constantly because there's no other option. It, at least I don't think they're perceiving. I don't think there's a broad adoption of, hey, you can get four plus percent in risk-free assets. I don't, I don't quite think that that has penetrated the, the general zeitgeist of the average investor. They're not, I don't think they're pausing at the moment and saying, actually, you can compound your money at you know sort of 4% a year. I think they're still in the hypnotized state. Yeah, the the sort of the Tina, the BFT, the BTFD, bottom hunting. It's worked. All the all the recessions have been short. The corrections have been even even oh eight oh nine, although severe, was was you know a V bottom. We haven't had the fulsome experience of a real bear market with you know the seventies. Again, I look at the seventies. Say, well, yeah, look, you know, you dollar average goes up and down, but you have to factor in the inflation and the real returns that were that were going on Negative at that time 67% as well. percent over 14 years. Yeah, correct. And that's where yeah. people I don't think understand. And that the 30s experience was the opposite. There was deflation that offset asset price decline. So when you look at the real real rates of decline in the 30s versus the 70s, they're almost about the same. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I think investors are still sort of, they've been conditioned and the conditioning right. will take some time. It, it took a lot of time to get this conditioning embedded in the markets. And I think it'll take some time to get it unconditioned to be yeah, not I think rewarded for that over and over. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I think that's absolutely right. Um, I think add to that, uh, that, uh, you know, your average millennial on down, millennials are at about 40th, 40% of, of where the baby boomers were in terms of wealth and, uh, you know, and, and household formation. Um, uh, you know, they have a ton of catch up to do in their minds. They're trying to buy homes that are out of reach. They are uh, falling behind. This is what's driven this, this uh, you know, all of the, the fiscal stimulus we've had. It's what's driven uh, the ideas of crypto and fairness and equity and equality that we all talk about. It's all a function of, of, a, of a working class, a labor class, which was the millennials on down, not having assets, not benefiting from this massive rally we've seen for 40 years and, uh, and, and then not seeing wage growth throughout that process either. So um, speculation is almost necessary for, these, for this cohort, right? Um, and, and they see it as a, as a means for catching up. That's why crypto, in my mind, exists. Uh, we've talked about this, I think, in passing. But, but you know, crypto is a confluence of three things. This idea of, hey, the system's not fair, right? Uh, so we're going to create something that's more fair. It's, it's an idea that uh, technology can solve all of our problems. Because guess what? For 40 years, we've thrown money hand over fist into growth. And that's created a technological revolution. And this generation has grown up with that. And then lastly, it's a desire to, to buy more convex assets and be speculative because they have to in order to get convex kind of returns. And that's what YOLOing calls is about. That's what crypto is about. That's what a lot of this kind of continuing to buy the dip is about. And I think all those things are related. So I, I yeah, you know, there was, there was, there was for, for, for the boomers and, and for the early extras anyway, I think there was a general perception that you could afford the American dream or, you know, the typical kind of middle-class lifestyle by saving labor income, you know, that was sufficient for a down payment on a home to, to fund a family, to send your kids to school. And I think the millennials quite rightly, unless something very material shifts over the, over the next five or 10 years are perceiving that you, you probably can't afford a middle-class lifestyle and to start a family um, in, in many sort of urban desirable urban centers um, on labor income alone, right? You need some kind of speculative win in order to subsidize that, um, uh, to, to, to get you to a lifestyle that, you know, maybe growing up, your parents and you kind of took for granted that every new generation sort of um, got that automatically. And so, so I think you're right. I think that's driving a lot of this behavior is just kind of a, 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 uh, a, a general kind of fear or terror, like when is it? When when do I get my shot? Right? When when do I get to start my family? And when do I get my shot at the dream that my that my parents lived? Right? Um, so so it's, what, which to what probably think- to some extent explains the uh, the move to, to, uh, towards populism on both sides of the aisle, right? Both Correct. Democrats and Republicans it's- have moved towards fiscal expansionary uh, policies with a different veneer, whether you're on the left or on the right, but essentially what they're saying is to the largest cohort of voters that are coming up, which is the millennials, as the boomers retire and and, and, and start to, to pass away, they now have to cater to these people that can't afford assets and primarily homes, right? Which is the uh, quintessential uh, 
aspect of the American dream. A hundred percent. I mean, what uh, do you guys think you... about like, Sorry, so, so the, yeah, the concept of, of, so if you go through the seventies and the eighties, the sixties as well, where boomers and, and early Xers were saving up for homes and whatnot, they, they also mm-hmm. had to be prudent budgeters to some degree. They saved for the home down payment. Interest rates were high. You had to make choices about consumption. I don't know. I've just heard from so many of of sort of before the last sort of six months or a year that you don't, you don't ever need to pay a mortgage, right? You're going to own a home and you're going to own a mortgage forever because, you know, it's free interest. And, And to some degree, there's been a lack of prudence to some degree. What do you guys think about that? Is that imaginary for me? Um, no, it's not imaginary. Uh, you know, just like anything, it's, uh, I think people are doing, uh, the best they can. Again, at 40% of where the baby boomers were, I think it's just a matter of haves and haves nots more than it is, um, you know, uh, whether or not, uh, the, the younger cohort is, is, uh, more or less spendthrift. Right. I think, uh, yeah, I, I I don't know. I I think uh, I don't think there's a there there may be a certain amount of uh, you know sixties, thirties, forties, fifties, sixties. You had more kind of maybe uh, new immigrants, new kind of a third world mentality of saving, and you know, and, and there may be a certain level of the children of those immigrants maybe not having that those same ideals to some extent. But I don't think that's the main story. I really don't. I, I don't. Yeah. I think I think uh, you know you have you have a a cohort that really is. Uh, having a hard time moving out of mom and dad's basement because because their wages just haven't been going up, and I don't think anybody mm-hmm. wants that shame or that you know that doesn't. Everybody wants to have their own, put their own mark in, and and wants to uh, again I go back to Donald Trump's rusted out cities in middle America. I mean, uh, there's there's this feeling that um, you know my I'm doing worse than my father, and and uh, and he did worse than his father, and it's been two generations, and I think that's just enough to cause enough shame. For people to say enough is enough, and I think that's really more of what it is. Whether you're, again, uh, an immigrant in Chicago or you know a working class white male in West Virginia, it's the same, um, the same reality. Yeah, we've largely focused on equities, uh, and I know that your primary focus on the vol side is on equities. But what are you seeing on some of the other major asset classes? Obviously, the vol we've seen so far this year in Treasuries, guilds. I mean, the whole sovereign bond complex has been uh, pretty remarkable. We haven't seen uh, something like that for some of them for like 30 years. It's been, I mean, historically, we've never seen anything like that. So what do you see and, and perhaps something, some of the things that might be flying under the radar of most investors from a market structure, vol perspective? Yeah, the 10,000 pound gorilla in the vol space has always been equity vol. Um, and hedging broadly uh, kind of has been in that area. Um, and so, um, you know, this is part of why dispersion works so well this year, uh, this ball dispersion. Uh, a lot of people are talking about it and kind of trying to understand why. And we were out front very, being very vocal that, you know, look, people are hedging the equity vol space in the S&P 500, for example. Um, uh, but, you know, single name equities are not where the hedge is. You're going to get much more, uh, you know, reflect much less reflexive pinning uh, in the single names and much more reflexive pinning in the index itself. So you're seeing things kind of flying around on the on the exterior while the index itself is actually 
kind of uh, not moving as much, or at least early this year, that was the case. And the same thing applies cross asset, right? So um, we were very vocal about a year and a half ago. So, you know, I think it was on the derivative podcast. I was, what is the best way uh, to hedge this? And the answer was interest rate fall, right? Um, or FX fall. And, and sure enough, those are the two things that have absolutely gone bonkers, right? Haywire, FX fall, actually, in particular, interest rate fall as well. Um, and, and the answer, the reason we said that is, again, because that's where people, A, weren't hedged, and B, that's where the most cross, uh, you know, uh, international cross-border kind of risks exist. Uh, the, you know, if the dollar continues to go go up, you're, you know, that's where things break um, as well. So that it's been, um, I still believe that's, uh, you know, those are the places where things are most likely to continue to break. FX fall, I think, is a great place to be after being a pretty quiet, sleepy place for a long time. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, those have been great secular trades. Um, now, I will say, people are now, we were talking about that a year and a half ago, people are now kind of a little bit more wise to this um, and are hedging less in the indexes, as we, as we already referenced. And, um, you know, they're, they're finding other ways to try and find hedges, whether it's uh, through single name hedges, through FX, through interest rate ball, et cetera. And so... As that happens, now you begin to, uh, you know, unpin maybe uh, kind of where the where the kind of the corks in the dam, right? Uh, you start to that thing starts to loosen a bit, and, and we've we've been talking about this uh, more actively lately. Uh, you know, on the back half of this, back into the seasonality, this market still has a lot of risk, and the higher we go, the more potential energy we have in terms of realized ball, given kind of all the macro things at place, and the less we're seeing, uh, you know, these hedges on the downside uh, are not coming back. Uh, and, and so we do believe that, uh, ironically, the, the new hedge is the one that didn't work, uh, which is actually equity, I think, vol is actually going to have a big 2023. Um, and again, we'll, I'll reference this podcast in the year nice. when we talk about that. So, um, so but, Jim, I've heard you, just a quick point in there. I've heard you reference this too. It's been a tough year for long vol managers. When you say that, are you, are you referencing specifically those equity, that just equity deal with the equity ball. side, right? Yeah, so, so these ball. guys are specialized, or the guys and gals are specialized. Correct. It's equity ball, and they Correct. haven't been trading the other areas of opportunity. Correct. Got Absolutely. it. Maybe and, just and for the left interest a of people, cliffhanger. I, well, I, I just want to make wanna... sure that you're you explain what you mean by dispersion trades too, because there may be lots of people. Long no, yeah, no, good point. So, disper- when we talk about dispersion, we mean. Uh, Playing implied correlation. What does that mean? That means uh, and a great example would be just selling S and P five hundred vol, buying the individual constitu- the vol and the individual constituents of the S and P five hundred. So um, you don't necessarily have to buy all five hundred, but a, a, in an arbitrage case, that would be the case. In that case, really, you make money if those underlying stocks are moving in opposite direction. If implied co- if correlation actually uh, decreases, right? Um, uh, you know, and, and you could do the opposite as well. But broadly, what's worked is is buying constituent vol for some time now and selling index uh, vol. And, and because again, the index itself has been pinned, which is forcing when it's, you know, and you still have idiosyncratic risk. One name will have to go one direction, which forces ultimately some other name in that constituency of the index is pinned to go the opposite direction. So there's a reflexive effect that's actually causing more correlate uh, breakdown and correlation uh, due to the amount of hedging that's been going on for the last year. So. Yeah. Very interesting. Okay. Sorry, Richard, go ahead. No, 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 that's uh, that's fine. I just wanted to pull on the thread. He left a cliffhanger there. I don't want to wait till the next season. Why are you seeing, what is your thesis behind this idea that the uh, volatility in equities is probably going to move stepwise higher uh, in 2023? Yeah, so when people think vol, 
uh, in the equity land, uh, your average person, I think, first thing they think of is the VIX, right? Uh, most investors, again, we kind of talked about this bias. Uh, think of things in terms of up or down. You either buy things or you sell them. Very simple. Two dimensions, right? Uh, the reality is uh, the VIX is a complicated calculation of a, of a distribution of 30-day ball. All the different options in the S&P 500 uh, average out to 30 days, right? And so Options represent different points of the distribution, uh, and they all have different vols. There's a skew to markets. There's like so, so why do I mention all this? Uh, well, uh, if you're buying a put at this point, you're basically buying almost on a flat skew. So the vol you're buying that downside put is almost the same vol, slightly higher depending on where you're talking about, to the at the money. That is, uh, again, historically low. So potential energy at this point, you know, we like buying things low, right, um, uh, is, is incredibly significant there. And imagine a situation, the range, let's say, is one multiplier, I'm oversimplifying, to one and a half on, on a one standard deviation put, right? Imagine it's at one and you're at the money vol is 30. And so your vol is 30. Normally, it would be on a 45 vol. A huge difference if all of a sudden that skew just reverts to you know the higher end of that range, just the skew. Never mind the vol itself, right? We've been uh, we've been sliding, uh, you know, flat and and vol has been coming down to the downside and going up to the upside. Now imagine all of a sudden actually that slide, that path actually uh, goes up uh, under a, a scenario where people are not as well hedged. So the potential energy just from an implied vol perspective is dramatic. So that's one. Two, the higher we go here, uh, given the macro risks that are out there, uh, the more realized potential energy we have for a decline back to uh, the low. Now, imagine, uh, you know, we, we rally back to 4,200 in the S&P here, which I think is very possible, maybe higher uh, in the next couple months. Um, and uh, and then you go into a Jan-Feb scenario where, who knows, China invades, uh, you know, Taiwan or, you know, inflation starts uh, ticking higher. The 10-year uh, accelerates despite, you know, the Fed, uh, you know, pivoting. Uh, the 10-year now goes to five. Like, what? Now let's say the market drops from 42 to 3,000, right? That's a 1,200 uh, point drop, uh, which is almost 30%. Um, so the, the realized potential, the further we get rally, it gets higher, the skew is flat, the vol is flat, then people are not as well hedged, which uh, can lead to a, um, you know, a, a, everybody trying to run out the door at the same time. So that's the thesis. We'll see. Interesting. And um, so I, I'd also love to talk about sort of your, your longer term um, macro view, right? So um, I've, I've heard you state for many months and on many um, platforms, your view that the next decade is going to look very different than the last three or four decades, probably. And so, and I think you've got a really tight framework for how to think through those differences. And um, so why don't I sort of open the floor to you and you can kind of take it from whatever part of your, of your broader thesis. Um, He's loosening up. Sense. Yeah. yeah, this, yeah. Is a, this, is a, this is a long one. I'm getting ready for this. You had to stretch on that <laughs> one. Gotta, gotta, here we go. Um, no, that, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, this is, I mean, it, this could be a multi-hour thing. So I don't, I don't want to, maybe start from the very beginning and it'll go all the way through. We've talked about some of this on the previous uh, conversation as well, but 
I'll say from 30,000 feet, and I've been, I want to be clear, I'm, this is not, I'm not a Johnny come lately on this. We've been talking about this for years. Agreed. Um, it's um, because of populism, right? It kind of starts at populism. Um, we have a cohort which is coming to political power, these millennials on down, right? Um, who, uh, who believe that it's the median outcome, right? Is more important than the mean outcome. That sounds like a very subtle difference. But if we start, start no longer maximizing for um, GDP, right? But start maximizing for median uh, wealth, right? Um, that is a dramatic change for, um, for outcomes for markets and outcomes uh, for the economy. Um, the way you do that after record inequality, which we sit at as regard as it relates, well, it's improving in the last year or so, but up until two years ago, we saw we sat at record inequality here in, in the U.S. based on a Gini coefficient. Um, uh, you know, the way you do that is is uh, you start doing helicopter money. You spend money from the government to individuals. You start sending dollars to people at the bottom, the median person, um, and you stop sending money to capital, right? And that's that's a demand side economics that that's going to drive because the people at the bottom, when they get money, what do they do? They, they all of a sudden, they couldn't buy that house. Now they can buy the house. They go buy a house. They couldn't buy that car or, or they, they were you know driving a used car. They're going to upgrade, et cetera, right? And so that drives inflation, right? You send money, yeah, helicopter money. The velocity of that is one, right? Um, what we were doing for 40 years is not that. We were not sending money to people on the bottom. We were sending money to people on the top. We were sending money. Uh, we were using monetary policy, which is lowering interest rates uh, and doing QE, which is sending money to capital markets or lending money to people who can borrow it. And the overwhelming majority of the people, and when I say people, most of, mostly corporations and asset holders of those corporations are the ones synthetically borrowing that money. And so we have uh, been on this uh this this wheel, this hamster wheel of continually sending money to capital. Uh, and I've used this analogy before. I'll use it again. Planet Palo Alto. We've been sending money to planet Palo Alto. This wonderful planet out in the distance, this shining purple light, uh, you know, in the sky where uh, they produce amazing technological uh, innovations. Right. Uh, and that money has been going, been sent, been sent out there, not into our economy, but out to the economy of planet Palo Alto and planet Palo Alto sends back these wonderful, wonderful technologies. They are Ubers and Amazons and Teslas and all kinds of things that, that are ultimately not only not money for demand, right? But they are supply, right? And so that's been very deflationary for 40 years. Uh, when we started doing record, you know, monetary policy in the 1990, 1996 Greenspan realized that uh, that that the natural state of unemployment was actually could be much lower and it wouldn't cause inflation. And this seemed like a free trick, right? You just keep doing it. And it's, you know, with only two mandates, price stability and maximum employment, uh, why not just keep doing more monetary policy, sending more money to capital if you ultimately cause deflation um, and more maximum employment? That, then you just keep doing more and more and more and more. And that's what we did. Because it's a free, it's a free look, right? The incentive structure was the Fed had two mandates. They were, you know, following their two incentive mandates, and that meant unlimited monetary policy. 
It's a free lunch as long as your objective, as you say, is to maximize growth in GDP and you Correct. don't mind sacrificing the, the wealth distribution. Correct. Correct. And so we're actually maximizing the well-being of a certain cohort. Right? I mean, another way to look at this is a generational divide, a, a regulatory and policy environment that is geared towards favoring boomers, boomers in power, favoring boomers, holders of the assets. And now there's a bit of a tussle and a, a, and a struggle for power there. In fact, that's true. I will say, though, I hate laying it out in those terms because I don't think the Federal Reserve personally, I don't think the Federal Reserve was sitting there saying, you know, we're, we're really doing this for the wealthy people. Um, I think they had a mandate to maximize GDP. And I think as far as they're concerned, uh, uh, dealing with inequality is not their job. Uh, that's government's job. And government wasn't doing their job. Um, and so whenever there's a crisis, they came in and they did their job, which was to continue to stabilize the economy and whatnot, right? So I don't think it's as nefarious as your tone implies. Um, I do think there are some structural things in place that, you know, power begets power and, and uh, on the margin that that does, uh, does happen, right? But, but who's, you know, who knows, right? I don't want to, you know, that, that's broadly oh, that's my fair enough. And I, I like keeping it apolitical as well. Um, uh, so... Uh, so essentially, the uh, the Fed was the only game in town. Uh, you know, I think I'm going to back up here for two seconds, and I think this is important. The Fed was created to smooth out the business cycle, right? It was created because democracy, at its core, is it was created in order to not pass laws easily, right? They didn't want absolute power to corrupt the system. Our founding fathers didn't. They they made it hard to pass laws. They made it. Uh, you know, checks and balances and and very difficult. But that led to lots of, you know, booms and busts. And eventually, as a people, we said, hey, we don't like booms and busts. We're going to smooth this out. We're going to create an extra governmental, uh, you know, uh, entity that helps deal with things quicker. Well, uh, our founding fathers would probably be turning in their graves because ultimately what that did is, is that short-circuited the, the Crisis and, and crisis itself is a critical ingredient to change. So by taking out crisis, we've eliminated government's ability to get the mandate to cost change. Um, and, and so the Federal Reserve was the only game in town because it kept coming back and quickly resolving problems. And so we never made changes. Um, so again, I don't think it's a conspiracy per se. It's just we were trying to solve one problem, not thinking about the big picture um, and uh, you know, dealing with short-term problems because government ultimately gets reelected in short-term cycles, and everybody cares about the short-term. Nobody thinks about big, long-term structural effects. So, so here we are. No crisis, major crises. I mean, yes, we had a wait. Yes, we had the tech bubble, but those were all resolved. We had COVID. Guess what? Resolved in a snap. Right? It was a V bottom. Um, but we didn't actually fix the core issue, which is we got we got more and more unequal. Our our, internally, we became more and more uh, combative because everything's unfair and things aren't working. Um, and here we are heading into a bigger crisis. Um, so what's the crisis that drives the necessity to force the change? Inequality itself, right? Um, uh, that inequality and addressing it now uh, puts the Fed in a box because the Fed now has to address, like the, now, now government has actually acted, right? COVID was the spark. Uh, you know, we, we talked about this already, but Trump brought the left, the right left, 
right? He saw he's a marketer. He saw the potential votes in 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 a you know uh, the the rusted out cities of Middle America. Uh, the left uh, and Bernie Sanders and AOC pushed the left left, right? Because they saw the same thing. And this created a political now coming together. That is the crisis, right? Uh, and, and COVID was the spark that led to uh, a massive fiscal stimulus. You know, by any by most measures, I think most of you know this at this point, eight to nine trillion dollars of fiscal stimulus um, has been passed, right? Which is an order of magnitude bigger than our response to the, to, to the GFC. Uh, in real terms, in real terms, it's an order of magnitude bigger than uh, the New Deal. Obviously, adjusted to the size of the, the economy, it's about the same. So, you know, in those terms, but this isn't Great Depression. This isn't like look around you. Like th- that is a massive fiscal response, and and that is inflationary, and that means higher interest rates, which means the Fed now has a problem because now they have a dual mandate where they have to to deal with that, and that opens up, um, you know, a, a coming likely crisis that opens up uh, other issues as well. Uh, when, once that becomes the case and the Fed is no longer in, in control, uh, now uh, other entities, you know, we go to, um, money's flowing to, to labor and not capital. Now, now capital uh, becomes more scarce. And we get into a, a geopolitical competition game, which is what we've seen during other periods of, of in, inflation. This is uh, not a surprise that in the 60s and 70s, we had an OPEC oil crisis. We also had a uh, you know, Vietnam War that lasted kind of 15 years. Uh, these things happen when there's resource scarcity. And, and uh, when, when money's going to corporations, uh, you have trade between countries, you have globalization, everybody's happy, rising tide lifts all ships. But when, uh, when people start getting money and it's about the people in that country uh, that, are, that are now competing for those resources and we become more nationalistic, we more, become more protectionist. Uh, and these are all things that ultimately lead to um, geopolitical strife as well. So again, people point to those things as all independent things that caused inflation in the 60s and 70s. It's really strange. We're seeing the exact same mix this time. Uh, you know, not a coincidence. I also find it interesting that the, um, the, the sort of the, the steps the government was emboldened to take moved through a progression of the amount of money that they would be able to spend without anybody sort of questioning it. Like you, you think back to Greenspan in 87 and he gets the ball rolling on intervention and then you just see it continue on long-term capital and then a little bit more intervention and then we get uh, into the great financial crisis oh hey this actually works and so you're you're much more emboldened as a as a a, a government body to to actually take the steps you, you look you put you look back you point back and say well it, it worked there why wouldn't it work here everyone's sort of used to it and you can just slowly dial that up through the decades as you implement it and it and it appears to work with obviously some consequences in the longer term yeah i mean the reality is look uh, at the core of all of this is uh greenspan's not here anymore right bernanke's not here anymore uh you know uh all the, all the presidents along the way aren't here anymore, right? Uh, it's all about short-term solutions in, in a democracy. And, and that's why crises matter. So it kind of course corrects. Um, uh, and, and that causes us to co- solve the problems. But then you remove the crisis from the equation for 40 years, right? Um, and you just don't course correct for 40 years. Um, and that just builds more and more pressure. And, you know, yeah, you're not really removing the business cycle. You're just making it bigger and more dramatic. It's the forest fire well, metaphor. A lot, right? lot of tinder at the exactly. bottom of the forest. Yeah, that's exactly right. 
Jem, I want to bring in the uh, variable of demographics here. I mean, if you listen to guys like Peter Zion and some other uh, analysts speak about this, uh, they're talking about a demographic collapse uh, in, in major Western countries, China, Russia, and, and, and some might say that that has even been the reason why Russia has launched this invasion in Ukraine now. And, and also that has been used as sort of an explanation as to why I've, I've heard you talk about this a little bit maybe the timeline for a Taiwan invasion may be sooner than a lot of people think because that they see this as a window of opportunity that they have. And so I, I wonder if you might speak to that demographic variable, uh, the inversion of the demographic pyramid, uh, too many retirees, not enough people of working age. What does that do for the system itself? And, and how does that factor into some of your uh, prognosis? Yeah, no, that's an incredibly important point. And we kind of touched on this a little bit, but Let's be more direct. So, you know, demographics are destiny. You've heard that before, right? It's it's critical to understanding the whole picture. And there's this work. This is important on several levels. Uh, you mentioned the the Zihan, uh, comments. So I'll reference. I'll, I'll I'll talk about those first. Those are prim primarily as it relates to China and Russia. Um, uh, both of them are in dramatic demographic decline. Um, you know, we talked about resource scarcity in these periods, right? But resources are several things. Resources are capital. Uh, you know, everybody thinks commodities first, but they're capital and they're labor, right, as well. And so uh, China, which is a primarily has benefited from uh, uh, their labor, right, over the last uh, 40 years, right? They have been the, the labor for the world and they have, have seen uh, themselves become kind of this manufacturing powerhouse on the back of that, Um they are due to their one child policy now going to see their population likely decrease from 1.4 trillion to about 750 million in the next 20 to 25 years. Um, that is uh, a dramatic change, right? They cannot provide their own consumption for their own products. Um, and, and they are dependent on outside entities to buy their stuff to continue to grow. Um, on top of that, uh, you have, uh, you know, you have a, a demographic issue in Russia, right? Dem uh, Russia has been in dramatic demographic decline um, uh, throughout the last 20, 25 years. They are currently about half of the population they were 20 years ago. Part of that is because of uh, emigration, people leaving. Uh, part of that is uh, just birth rates are dramatically low in Russia. Um, and so they themselves have similar issues, right? Um, if you, if you were the U.S. and, and the U.S. had that problem, and, and we have to some extent, let's a lesser extent, a, a similar issue, we can fill that void via immigration. Now, our immigration policy is a bit <laughs> messed up at the moment, um, you know. Uh, but but the reality is, throughout history, we have filled that void uh, very successfully, and if we so need to, we can again. Uh, people come to America still because of the obvious you know, freedom and uh, rule of law and all opportunity and the other things that, that exist here. Um, China cannot do that. Russia cannot do that. And so they are in a ma massive structural problem. They, 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 have, they have no solution to, to the, this problem they've created. When you go into a higher interest rate environment and resource scarcity, and we go through periods of, of protectionism and, and, and competition like we are entering now, the entities that tend to lash out are the ones that are weak or the ones that, that feel some feel threatened, right? 
Existentially. Uh, existentially. And that's understandable, right? They feel threatened. Um, and generally, Russia and China are very proud cultures, old cultures with a long history of, um, you, know, uh, you know, different uh, empires along the way, right? Um, that, that and if I may that add... No, if I may just add, China with the uh, aggravating factor that they feel they've lived through a century of humiliation, and they now are on a course to rectify that uh, and, and put themselves as they see it in, in their rightful place on the global pecking order. So I, I think that is a, a, a strong uh, variable to consider here. Yeah. And doesn't that narrative sound familiar, right? I mean, I think we've heard that throughout history. I mean, uh, I think, uh, you know, Germany might have, you know, a few things to say about that, right? <laughs> so it's true. It's scary, but that's the reality of the world. Um, they feel threatened. Uh, they feel hemmed in. That's what Putin is vocally saying. You tried to hem us in. You didn't allow us to, you know, to thrive. Uh, but there's much bigger things underneath the surface, right? Are that it's really driving their existential problems. It's not just the being hemmed in by the world around them. They don't, they haven't been able to fight back, right? Uh, they haven't been able to thrive for several other reasons. So, so demographics is critical. Now, to relate that piece to Taiwan, um, if you think about China, if you have, if you know you're going to lose, uh, you know, 40% of your population in the next 25 years, and you rely on production and efficiency to sell to the whole rest of the world, um, you, you need to replace that labor through technological advancement in some way. You need those inputs to, you know, a substitute for labor is technology. Um, and without control of that, you're in big trouble. You're, you're, you're an existential, you're an existential threat. On top of that, is the price. It's incredibly important. On top of that, China is dependent on, uh, they don't have all their own commodities. So they're, they're incredibly dependent on importing commodities. And Taiwan represents the middle of the inner island chain, the first island chain, which is a means of controlling, if necessary, right, uh, the import of oil and energy and other things that are critical um, to China's um, uh, you know, success in the long run. So they see Taiwan as a existential need for them on multiple levels. Uh, that's why they've also partnered with Russia because of the commodity uh, equation, right? Um, so it's, it's a natural, once you start backing up and looking from 30,000 feet, this is a natural alliance. It's a natural uh, for, for a cohort that feels threatened uh, existentially so. Um, and the more they feel threatened and the more the, uh, they get surrounded and, and the further they go, the, the more the news tightens and the more they're going to struggle. Right. Um, so I don't know what the solution is. I want to be clear. This is uh, this is there's no easy solution um, to, to what what is happening here. But we it does seem, seem somewhat inevitable. Unless, yes. The more we the more they uh, kind of lash out, the more we try and control the situation, the the more the worse it gets. And that's kind of the cycle that we're in. And the more that accelerates the timeline for somebody like China, because the more, uh, you know, the longer they wait, the less probability they have of, of success. Um, anyway, so that's that, that demographic piece as it relates to Zihan's thoughts, to my kind of nuances tied to it um, in China and Russia. Um, now, demographics here before in the U.S. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, before you jump in, I was just going to say uh, with the recent move by the U.S. to uh, ban the export of 
chip manufacturing uh, or, or any technological uh, export to China right now seems to be forcing their hand, which would kind of uh, play into your thesis that the timeline for a Taiwan invasion is more accelerated than most of us might uh, care to uh, consider. Yes, uh, 100%. Again, the, the more we encircle and put pressure on them, this is an existential threat as they see it. Um, there's a lot of other things wrapped up in this, as we talked about, you know, uh, obviously, Chiang Kai-shek, uh, you know, this is a, a still an ongoing civil war as far as they're concerned. So, um, so yes, absolutely. I, I think this is uh, inevitable. I'm not the first person to say this. Uh, now, Ferguson said, went out and predicted uh, November of this year, about a year and a half ago, before anybody was talking about this. I mean, we've been out there talking about it for about a year, but he was he was way out in front of this. And here we go, right? We're hearing it from, uh, you know, Blinken, uh, you know, the head of the Navy, uh, you know, that, that that timeline is much closer than people probably realize. Um, so um, I think that makes sense. Again, uh, just going based on incentives here, right? It's not like I, I, I know any more than anybody else, right? Um, but, but the incentives tend to lead to the outcomes. Uh, it's generally the best route for the game theory of it all the game theory or yeah absolutely absolutely so um and at the very least you know on a probability basis right the probabilities that are priced into the market relative to i mean i don't think we have to dive into how how bad a thing that would be right um i think it's easy to underestimate how, how big a deal that is if china and the u.s go to war um, I mean, uh, Russia is, is, is uh, child's play uh, and, and uh, you know, we're talking about the bifurcation of the number one and number two economies in the world, the number one consumer and the number one producer in the world. Uh, you think we have inflation now, right? Um, you know, you ain't seen nothing yet. Um, and the, pro- the probabilities of that are one in three in the next year and a half, which is what I think at a minimum it is at this point. Um, markets are, you know. Talk about potential energy and going back to the flows and everything we were talking about before, um, you know, the, uh, and, and how low skew is and how little hedging is working. Well, you know, the window there for something bigger is um, that could definitely be the spark that drives it. And these binary events are inherently difficult to position for, right? It's not like you can do a probability weighted average of outcomes and just kind of shoot for the middle it's it, 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 that that's not how that works uh, uh, for those types of events so how do you think about portfolio positioning I, I know we're taking a tangent from geopolitical realm into portfolio construction but I, I I'm just curious as to how you would attack that problem yeah I've been I've been pretty vocal about the fact that uh, you know we live in an incredibly leptocritic distribution uh, fat tails um, is really what the distribution should look like um, there is a point where you know, you just don't sell nickels. You don't sell 20 centers. They're just undervalued for the probability, you know, uh, of what's out there. We used to have a saying in, in, on the trading floor, uh, you know, sell a cab, drive a cab. So a cab is a cabinet. It's a nickel. So you just don't, you don't do those things um, in, in this type of a distribution. You own as many as you can uh, because ultimately you, you may not, you know, if you're short-sighted, you'll think, oh, those are a loser every time. But uh, if you look at the, the hundred occurrences, this is probably more like one in 50 as opposed to one in a hundred. And that stuff is, uh, has a probably a positive expectancy at this point. Um, so I think you just have to think about it in distributional terms. That's what, 
we do as options traders. I think uh, that's is why uh, you know vol markets are incredibly useful and powerful in a, in, a, in a a type of market that we are currently living in because you can really bet on the distribution. Uh, you don't have to buy or sell. You don't have to be long or short. You can just be long the tails and short something that's less taily, less times, right? Um, and so, uh, and ultimately, arm in a sense the distribution of what you think the reality is versus what the market may be pricing. And I think that's an important kind of outlook to have when you're investing your money in this type of environment. Notwithstanding the potential for a, a few of these major um, tail events, which are increasingly moving towards the center of the distribution in terms of probability. But I mean, even just a base case, if we, if we manage to navigate through some of these um, macroeconomic and, and geopolitical landmines over the next few years, it, it seems like you're aligned with the view that due to a scarcity of labor, um, a political climate that is motivated to um, reorient the wealth distribution um, and, you know, potentially a restricted flow or a cost of capital that, you know, there's, there's just a lot of general scarcity over out there relative to the potential for further demand shocks, whether it's, you know, just because we've got a lot of money in the bank from past fiscal largesse or the fact that there's going to be, you know, more and more fiscal largesse over, over subsequent years, not just in the U S but in, in most kind of uh, developed foreign economies as well. Um, so, I mean, notwithstanding, you know, the potential for major tail events, uh, how would you or how are you advocating for uh, investors to position here? Just, in, you know, like what does a strategic asset allocation look like uh, in, in, this, in this environment? And, and what are some adjunct strategies that, that you think might be highly complementary, especially over the next decade? So, um, so the, we go through cycles where, uh, where as a people, we see uh, capital markets as the most efficient uh, allocator of capital. And then we go to periods like we are now, whether people kind of realize it or not, where we start to say, hey, capital markets aren't fair. You know, free market economics doesn't necessarily work for everybody. And we choose for government to be a more fair or you know, efficient allocator of capital as we choose it to be. And if we're prioritizing the median outcome where government's gonna have to be very involved. So um, I think it's fair to say that um, government is going to be sit at the, the spout of where money is flowing for the foreseeable future. That was the case during the Great Society program of the 60s and 70s. That was the, the case for the New Deal during the 1930s. Um, and so I think that's the case now. Um, and again, uh, about a year ago, when we, after the first fiscal wave started, everybody said, oh, we, we won't make that mistake anymore. And then came the Inflation Protection Act, and the, you know, the, right, which itself is fiscal stimulus and, and, uh, you know, or forgiveness of, of, of debt, uh, et cetera. So we are going to continue. Um, and this, again, going back to the 60s and 70s, Nixon was uh, the probably most laissez-faire Republican uh, on the stump and, and broadly uh, thought of as such. Um, but he actually did more than Lyndon B. Johnson did in terms of fiscal stimulus uh, when, it, when, when the rubber hit the road, because that's what the populist uh, zeitgeist of the time demanded. 
right? Um, he's the one that instituted price controls. Price, price controls themselves are fiscal stimulus, right? Um, and so I think we're going to continue, and I think that's the biggest trend you can expect, is continue to see policies that help defer the costs uh, of inflation on people uh, through some type of fiscal stimulus, whether that's price controls or first-time homebuyer tax credits or uh, you know, free health care or student loan forgiveness, right? That whether you're right or left, I think that's popular, and and uh, and we've seen that to date, and I think that'll continue. So if you take that as an assumption, uh, you know, then you want to sit next to government. Uh, you want to sit at the mouth of the river and uh, and drink from the mouth of the river. So uh, the mouth of that river, uh, you know, the, go look at the budget of the U.S. government line by line, and uh, you know, go look at uh, whether it's. Uh, housing and urban development or infrastructure or healthcare. I think healthcare is an underappreciated uh, opportunity in the next decade, given its need for technological innovation and our ability to kind of um, to, to solve some of those problems uh, through government. Um, uh, you know, defense, defense spending. I was just, you know, took the words out of my mouth that we live in an increasingly hostile, you know, uh, competition world. Uh, guess what? Uh, that probably a good time to. Uh, invest in, in defense. Um, and so all of these trends we've been talking about for a year and they've all been incredible trends, but resource scarcity, uh, that means commodities, right? I think it's well documented at this point uh, where uh, energy is about three and a half percent of the S&P 500 in 1982, it was 30% or so. Um, those are extremes. I'm not saying we're going straight to 30%, except from 1.75%. It's a, it's a double, right? But We've been talking about that as it's doubling, and I think this is just the beginning. So I think you're in a secular trend there. Um, so there's there's uh, there's a few uh, labor scarcity we talked about. Okay, so uh, if you're going to have to rotate away from China, um, it's probably pretty good for Mexico. Um, it's probably good for onshoring domestic uh, manufacturing. Um, you know, energy is a lot cheaper here than it is in Europe. Uh, you know, one way you close that gap is you just move operations from Europe to the U.S. Um, so there's a lot of structural trends in place that, and, and these are to be clear when you, everybody's like burying their head in the sand saying, woe is me. You know, I can't buy the dip in dollar cost average indexes. There are massive opportunities in this market, right? We're on the turn here. And, and the key is just not to be, uh, it's not about beta. It's actually, let's go think about what's happening in this world and let's actively manage a portfolio. Uh, active management has withered on the vine for the last 40 years because it's too expensive and it's much easier to just close your eyes buy an index and watch it go up 15% a year and close your eyes when it goes down in dollar cost average. Well, guess what? When that stops working, it's worth paying, uh, you know, 2% or whatever to an active manager who knows what they're doing, who can generate returns. Um, so I think there's a massive move to active management from passive. I think passive, uh, which is compounded, at, you know, for 40 years and has created some trillion dollar investment entities that all they do is 60, 40 um, investment. I think that stuff, uh, you know, goes the way of the dodo. Now, I don't think passive investment in the sense of uh, simplified products is going on. I think there's a secular trend in that, but I think you're going to see a lot more liquid alternatives. I think you're going to see a lot more passive vehicles that are non-correlated opportunities as well. I think there's still a hope in um, among many investors that um, they can continue to sort of stay within the U.S. equity ecosystem um, allocate to active, maybe on the margin, allocate to more active type of strategies there and continue to generate um, the returns that they require in order to meet their liabilities. And, you know, one of the, one of the studies that, that I like to go back to as 
um, an example of why maybe we should we shouldn't be so confident that strong stock picking um, will help to overcome that that negative drift of of um, you know just not being in the right environment for that particular asset class. We did a study a few years ago of um, I think it was the ten year returns of um, of U.S. equity mutual funds developed um, uh, foreign. Uh, market mutual funds and emerging market mutual funds. And we compared the performance of the fifth percentile U.S. equity mutual fund against the 95th percentile emerging market mutual fund. Hmm. And the fifth percentile U.S. equity mutual fund completely obliterated the 95th percentile emerging market mutual fund over the last whatever it was, five or 10 years, right? Um, just emphasizing the fact that you, you can't stock pick your way out of an over allocation to the wrong asset class, right? Absolutely. So it, you're really, I think, going to need investors to think more deeply about all of the broad global opportunity set and um, think more broadly about diversification in general um, o- over the next decade in order to be successful. Absolutely. I think if you're, and we're seeing that this year, right? I mean, the last year and year and change, actually, uh, the last year and a half, really since February of 2021, uh, when tech started kind of imploding. Um, but, you know, China's down now 75% from its high. Well, we haven't seen yet the, the, the divergence, right? The positive divergence of, of other economies. You haven't in isolation, you know, for example, Brazil has, has done relatively well um, over the last, like there's a couple of sort of standouts mm-hmm. But certainly there's not yet nearly a recognition that there is huge potential for ex-US markets and, and other asset classes to completely dominate, largely because of you know, potentially currency effects, but also just sector composition, right? As you say, 3.5% in energy in the US right now, if you're buying the, the, the cap-weighted index versus, I don't know what it is in Canada, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna estimate it's probably 15 or 20%, right? Right. And it'll be higher in certain other jurisdictions. So those types of things will matter. I want to hammer on one very, very, very important point. In 68 to 82, I'll keep referencing that because it's just an easy period where the market went nowhere for 14 years. But during that period, the economy in real terms grew above trend. Think about that. The market went nowhere in nominal terms and in real terms lost 67% of its value for 14 years during a period where the economy adjusted for inflation that was really high grew above trend. Mm -hmm. Initial conditions. Correct. The market is not the economy. People take those two things to be like every single person. I think a retail investor, you go talk to them. We're going to have, we're going to have above trend economic growth. They'd be like, well, got to go buy stocks. Um, that's not how this system works. Okay. And that's why fundamentals are not a good predictor of equity market returns. What is a good predictor of, uh, of, of equity market returns is amount of money in investors' hands. The amount of money uh, on corporate you know, balance sheets to buy right stocks. Um, and that uh, is more a function of liquidity than it is a function of uh, earnings. Um, I sat down with uh, 
a friend of mine who's a partner at Vista Equity Partners, a big private equity firm. Their businesses are booming. And they're in the technology space too. Uh, technology stocks are in the gutter. But guess what? Their portfolio companies are crushing it. Um, uh, you know, their cash on cash returns are increasing um, and adjusted for inflation even more so. So the talk is consistently about, are we going into recession? Are we not, you know, as it relates to the market? I know it's it, comical. It has nothing to do <laughs> with what's important here. Um, what's important here is, again, I, I think demand will continue to be more resilient than people expect. Mm-hmm. Um, we're running a demand side economy. We're sending money to people and that's driving higher GDP. But guess what? We've been in record price to sales valuations, right? For some time and record uh, margins for some time, right? Those things are going to normalize. Yeah. So, and they're going to normalize because interest rates are going higher. So the resources are more expensive, right? Resources, whether it's labor via globalization or technological advancement or, you know, they've all been cheap. Money's been cheap. Labor's been cheap. Quantity's been cheap. Well, when that starts to change, margins compress. Price to sales. Sales may increase, but that doesn't mean earnings are going to be better across the whole economy, right? And that definitely means uh, as interest rates go higher, not only do you have less money chasing assets in general, but you have because of the reverse Tina effect now money flowing to bonds, and there's just less demand, so multiples contract. So that combination of margin compression, multiple contraction, um, can be can be very very powerful during what might otherwise be a relatively good economic um, period, and particularly for the median outcome, might be actually a net, you know, very strong outcome, right? Uh, maybe very positive. So I, I just think it's important to get your head around that. Everybody plays this. What's the economy going to do? Let's invest in good businesses, right? Go buy good cash flow, discounted cash flows, which have not mattered really for 20 years, or at least, you know, for the most part, like current cash hasn't mattered, right? At least uh, adjusted for, uh, for, for a long-term cost of money, um, you know, haven't mattered, but that's going to matter a lot more. So this whole value growth rotation that we saw for 40 years, growth just dramatically killed value. And, you know, every value manager, you know, has, has been either liquidated or long since given up the, the guess what? That's going to work again. Uh, it's going to matter because cash is more valuable. And, you know, you can generate cash when others can't uh, and others can't borrow money anymore. You get to buy those companies uh, when there's mal- that malinvestment gets liquidated. You get to reinvest your in buying your own stock and doing other things when other companies can't. Um, and so, um, you know, I think that's another major trend to be focused on. That's a huge, huge point. I mean, earnings growth of the S&P was actually almost identical in the two periods from, you know, that uh, 65 to 81 period. In the eighty-one to ninety-nine period, the the earnings growth of the S and P was seven percent in both cases. The challenge was the initial conditions uh, in right. both cases was very different, and the inflationary experience. Right, you started, you know, eighty-two conditions were a PE multiple of nine, and inflation was at ten percent. Right, you know, and uh, the other is you know sixty-five starts at twenty-three multiple, and inflation at two percent. Yep. Any and of this ringing any bells for anybody? Should yeah. should we ding, 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 right? Yeah, there? and this like, is why the Schiller PE works, right? This is why people have been kind of, again, we extended that uh, that cycle because of, uh, again, monetary policy. And and it took a while for for this kind of, uh, this, you know, the, the pressures of, of normalizing interest rates to take hold. 
Um, but uh, yeah, you can't fight gravity at the end of the day forever. What's interesting is in, in the 1970s, you didn't have the level of financialization that we have currently, right? And and, and sort of so yeah, or leverage. So I, I would argue that the causal effect is actually reverse, right? When when you have a decline in the S and P or or in broad equities. Uh, you have a negative wealth effect, which then impacts the real economy to some degree, not to mention the fact that executives in large corporations have become stewards of the price of their stocks more than anything else. And that tends to affect labor because of hiring freezes and even layoffs once the uh, margin compression starts to come in and people have to lay off and cut costs. So I wonder if if that negative wealth effect that might come if we are to experience a, a broad decline in equities and that negative effect, uh, negative wealth effect that would come from it. Does that perhaps force uh, the hand of fiscal policy even further? Right, they 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 have to perhaps fill in that gap, which then bleeds and, and feeds inflation even more. So I'm uh, I don't yeah. know if that that's no, a bit I, of a reach, but uh, no, not at all. Um, we actually did a our last newsletter about kind of inflation and uh, the historical context and how it's different now. So um, I'll touch on a couple of those things that I I actually tend to think the fed is it's complicated, right? It's not just black and white, but I do think on, on the whole, the fed is actually making structural inflation worse by trying to deal with it in cyclical means. Um, And I'll kind of get to that in a second, but, but, um, but it's important to note that the fed um, has always tried to hem in inflation via um, by basically three channels, right? Um, when they when they raise interest rates, there are three effects that feed through to the real economy, right? Uh, historically, one um, via real estate, right? Uh, uh, you know, if uh, if you raise the cost to borrow, right, uh, there's less demand for properties. It becomes more expensive and you slow the economy, cons- construction and, and issues that way. Two, uh, labor, right? So there's a trickle down. It's supply side economics. But if you take money from corporations, the theory is they hire less people, they pay people less, and that means less demand. And then three, um, the wealth effect, as you mentioned, right? They bring down capital markets, people have less money to spend. Um, historically, um, I'd argue that all three of those don't work nearly as well as, uh, you know, even the 60s and 70s, as well as uh, they would hope, right? Um, one, because it's trickle down on labor, right? Uh, so it takes a while. There's a lag. Um, you know, uh, you're taking more money from wealthy people than you are from people who spend uh, in general. Uh, two, uh, you know, in terms of real estate, if you raise the price, uh, of of uh, uh, borrowing to buy houses, yeah, you're going to have p- less people buying houses, but people still have to live in homes, and that just means rents go up. Um, and then three, the wealth effect. Uh, if most people don't own stocks, and it's just the wealthy people, how much are you curtailing demand? Right. So that was always the case in the 60s and 70s, but we live in a particularly different type of economy now, right? Most labor for corporations, uh, you know, a lot of it's abroad, right? So, uh, you know, it, it's not like you you take money from corporations, all of a sudden you see as much massive layoffs as as you would, you know, hope to slow the economy, right? Yeah, you see some, um, but as we've seen recently, we've taken rates from 
from from zero to you know four you know four and a half in terms of expectations right at the long end of the curve or four and a quarter, and uh, haven't seen wages go down. If anything, wages are continuing to go up, and they're going up domestically, and that's the important part. Like we don't care about wages abroad. We're talking about wages here. We're actually seeing wages here go up more because of this competition game that's going on and the protectionism and everything that's going on yeah. otherwise. Re- yeah. So for labor, like it, it doesn't, we're not as labor intensive an economy as we used to be because of globalization. Uh, real estate, everybody had bought a home in the last 40 years because rates were zero. If you didn't, you know, you didn't lock in 30 year mortgages, like shame on you. Most people did, right? Uh, and they did several times on the way. Uh, down in yields. And so, yeah, if you're a new buyer, uh, rents are going up, but it's not like people are uh, getting hurt if you already bought a home. You may be getting stuck in the home that you're in um, or something along those lines, but the effect there has been significantly less because we had low interest rates for a really long time and everybody already bought a home that could. It's just the incremental buyers that are being kind of hurt here. And then lastly, uh, wealth effect due to massive inequality, it's almost all the people at the top that own stocks. So again, it's back to that effect. It's even more dramatic in terms of those effects that I've been talking about. An adjunct to the housing thing though, too, is that you've got a ossification of the of, of labor mobility, right? So you get you sort of alluded to it, but I just want to make sure we we, we punctuate that point, right? Where yeah. Obviously, higher labor mobility means that there's more people competing for the right kinds of jobs in different regions of the economy. And if people are kind of are, are locked into their homes because they are locked in at, at very low rates, and if they were to go buy a home somewhere else, then they'd have to lock it at a much higher rate. There, that's a strong disincentive to move, right? Yeah, that's a very astute point. I, I completely agree um, uh, with that as well. On top of that, and we talked about Planet Palo Alto, but from 30,000 feet, right? We're taking a, a money away from supply. Um, all of this, you know, for 40 years, we don't forget, we had, you know, uh, not inflation, but deflation when we had a historic monetary policy. Why in the world do we think by taking monetary policy out of the system that we're going to cause, uh, you know, deflation? Uh, if anything, we're removing money from supply. You need supply to meet demand. We're driving demand through uh, you know, uh, through fiscal policy, but now we're moving corporations' ability to provide supply. So, like, yeah, in, a, in the short term, you can lower the amount of money in the system, and and you know, through brute force, bring down cyclical inflation. But from more structural, longer term perspective, you're actually hurting supply in a time when you're feeding demand, and it's structurally driving probably more inflation. And so, and it's so, not so sustainable. To, to curtail demand to that extent because you're going to create civil unrest to a degree where they're going to elect people into power that are going to just give the people what they want. So that's a, it, that, that's a Band-Aid for a, for a much larger problem. And that was my last of many points in this uh, paper. Again, I recommend people go take a look at it. It's on, uh, uh, on our website. You can subscribe to it. But the, the last false point- False profits one? Yes, is false it the profits, one on the exactly. Yep. Yeah. But, but that's the, like, one of the final points is that Look, by bringing down cyclical um, inflation, by bringing down, you know, driving a, a recession in a populist environment, what do you think the response is going to be? <laughs> what do you, you, you think we're going to do more monetary policy and send that to wealthy people and solve the economy again? Or are we probably going to get 
you know, crisis will drive more fiscal stimulus. That's what drove uh, secular inflation in the 60s and 70s. That's what drove price control. You know, the recessions that we drove ultimately led to more fiscal policy. Um, and so we're in this, uh, you know, on this flywheel and like, you know, we're, we're causing more stress and crisis along the way, which is just going to drive more structural fiscal. It's a bit policy, of a doom loop. Just going to. Yeah. So. So I, again, I, I would argue that the you know the Fed doesn't have a choice. They're they're a political entity at the end of the day. If they don't act, then you know uh, they lose their credibility, and 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 everybody you know says you know you did all this for all these years and drove uh, all this money, uh, you know, uh, to to the rich, and you know, but now you have you know now you have inflation. You're not dealing with inflation. That's the kind of the the zeitgeist. But the reality is, I I don't think the Fed is actually doing what's good for. The economy, what's good for you know what it, at what cost we're gonna we're gonna cause uh, a, a recession. We're gonna keep going. Maybe cause something worse, um, and we're not ultimately going to make inflation better structurally. We're actually gonna probably make it. We're not gonna make it better. We're gonna make it worse. So, um, are they providing cover for what they know is going to be a continued sort of onslaught of fiscal largesse? Right. Like, I mean, it's yeah. If anything, they need to be situation. you know they need to be providing more. Uh, lower interest rates, uh, supply of money, right to to government to help uh, to, you know to help along the way. So, um, yeah, this is but in uh, addition the Fed's to doing monetary- the exact wrong thing, if you ask me, I think they're they're going about it completely um, uh, opposite to how they should. Yeah, in addition to the monetary uh, uh, tightening, which in a, in a broad sense uh, keeps companies from being able to invest and, and offer additional supply. You have regulations that have been particularly hostile to certain industries, namely energy, right? You, you have this, this forced uh, uh, upon the, the, this idea of, of greening the energy grid has been forced upon the Western world. And, and, and there's merits to that from the standpoint of protecting the climate and all that. The problem is you have to build a bridge between here and where we want to get. And, and now the problem is the U.S. should be self-sufficient in energy, and it is no longer because of all the hostility towards them. So it's not just a monetary aspect of it, but it really is micro-regulation. And, and so I wonder, other than energy, are there other regulatory aspects that I may be missing here in this example? And, and, and what do you think about those? Yeah, I mean, uh, so... I've been, we've been talking a lot about energy the last six months. Uh, we actually did a couple of podcasts uh, on Top Traders Unplugged, which I've been co-hosting uh, of Adam Rosenzweig, who uh, is a kind of a thought leader in, in the space, a uh, big commodity guy. And, uh, you know, uh, through that process, you know, have done a pretty deep dive. And, and you know, there's a, there's a metric, and you guys may have heard about this, maybe not, but, you know, energy on energy efficiency, EOEI, uh, the amount of energy in it takes to produce energy out. Right. Um, and if you look at that, those those numbers historically, you know, we started at uh, kind of three to one with uh, with firewood and, you know, other simple metrics. And throughout history, from the time of, uh, the, you know, Rome to, to Beijing, the biggest, you know, 1700 years, the biggest uh, city was a million people because we could not get create enough resources in the area around uh, given the distance that needed to travel to make a bigger city than that. Then we discovered kind of coal and we discovered, uh, you know, other means uh, of, of uh, fossil fuel uh, production, um, eventually oil. Um, and that led to 
you know, an increase all the way to six to 10 to 12 EOEI. Um, uh, and it has led to a major boom, right? Throughout that period of growth of cities, growth of production, growth of worldwide population. Uh, it's a major, major driver, right? Uh, you know, you don't have the resources, you know, you can't thrive. I kind of liken it to the Mesozoic area, right? Like there were just a lot of oxygen. So dinosaurs got really big and there were a lot of them. And then, you know, that kind of changed and, and <laughs> the population suddenly shrunk and everything got smaller. Uh, you know, resources help determine the size that, that we can grow. And, uh, the problem is uh, we we could do that without, you know, and there was an externality, which is pollution, which we didn't feel in the, in the short term. Um, and now all of a sudden we're saying, okay, we have to take into account that externality. Um, and in order to deal with that, we are going to uh, go back to from 13 to, to six or seven EOEI. Um, you know, you can't do that overnight. Um, you have to create more efficient forms of getting that. Um, you have to use forms like nuclear, which is more like 30 to one, by the way, um, to, to, to solve those problems, um, at least along the way. And, uh, and so the policy has been completely devoid of, of that conversation or kind of uh, being thoughtful about, about how we approach dealing with this externality, this, this pollution, which I, I agree is, uh, you know, potentially existential to us as a, as a world, but, but we have to solve those problems thoughtful of, uh, of, of those, those numbers. And, uh, you know, the biggest, again, I, I don't want to go on my, my soapbox for nuclear, but, but, you know, the fact that nuclear hasn't been a major, major part of, of uh, environmental policy throughout the last 20, 30 years. My dad is a PhD structural engineer, designs offshore oil platforms from the, from the day I was 10, you know, about 35 years ago, I remember him talking about how nuclear is the answer. Like, why aren't we using more nuclear, right? Uh, and he's a petroleum engineer. Um, it, it's been there in plain sight for all of us to see forever, but it's, a political, it's been a political nightmare throughout different periods because when you have a, a pollution an issue environmentally it's all at once and and it's uh you know they're just kind of not my backyard mentality but um there are solutions to our problems i think that's important to note they take time uh and as we mentioned before sometimes you need crises to solve problems and here we go here comes a crisis um expect uh, an, an energy crisis it's coming um the supply is so inelastic and it takes so long to build supply that there really is no solution in the short term, uh, meaning in the next five years, to solving these problems without investment. Um, and uh, demand has been low because of China uh, shutting down their economy because mm -hmm. of other factors. Um, it doesn't take much incremental demand or realization that demand's actually there and not going away, that we're not entering a deep recession, which we already talked about, um, uh, for, for these, some of these things to go parabolic. It's astonishing, actually, that we're sustaining such high energy prices and such low global inventories, given that the Chinese economy has been effectively shut for, for you know, going on two and a half, three years. Especially given how inelastic that supply curve is. Absolutely. It just does not take much. Uh, and actually, I would argue that the demand assumptions are actually too low, as is, yeah. given uh, kind of outlooks uh, we've, we've talked about in terms of we're in a demand push economy. And probably yeah. secularly so. I agree. Chen, just to, just, to, just to close the loop, because you sort of, there was a bit of a dangling um, lead there on the fact that you think the Fed is doing, um, is implementing the exact wrong policy. So I just love, like, how, how should the, I know that, that 
Well, are you making me Fed is, chairman? Is that what's no, happening? Yeah, here? sure. You're, you're chairman for a day. <laughs> what are you doing? Why? But 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 my sense oh, is God. that your I don't know. I want I don't know that I want that job. Is that 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 high rates are constraining supply right when when fiscal largesse is is uh, producing surging demand, which I so I get that argument. So the so Fed, you want, a qu- you want a quick fix. You want the Fed to come to the, the come, Fed, come through and fix the problems. Over what, what is it? What, how do you, um, how do you, you're doing the wrong thing. What is the right thing? You can't cause what you can't do what you've done for 40 years and then choose to address 40 years of growing inequality overnight, which is what we're trying to do. And, you know, not have negative effects. So will the political I'd, I'd climate allow a slower you, solution? Yeah, I, I, they're better solutions, but they don't happen overnight. Um, you know, you need to, uh, you know, we, we took a, a shortcut for 40 years and, and we kind of ignored that it was an issue. And now we're going to address that issue and we're looking for another shortcut. Uh, there's no shortcut. Uh, you know, you have to have good policy. Uh, yep. there, there is good policy, believe it or not. Uh, you know, I can get into kind of details, but it, it's not the feds, you know, the feds not going to be able to get us out of this. They, they got us there, but they're not going to be able to get us out. Right. Um, uh, you know, it's going to take good policy for some time to rebalance things and we're going to have to muddle through. Um, now this conversation seems incredibly negative. I want to leave it on a positive note. Uh, this is, I, I, and I do think negative. I'm excited. <laughs> there is a lot of opportunity. You just trader, told me nuclear is going yeah. through the roof. Energy's <laughs> going through the roof. No, I agree. I, I, there's I'm there's tons it. of opportunity. Uh, knowledge yeah. is power in this environment more than ever. Um, but I do want to leave it on a more macro positive note. Um, you know, 1930s and 40s was the Great Great Depression and, and World War II. Right. Um, if you talk to the greatest generation, uh, those were incredible incredibly difficult times. Uh, they, um, they don't know how they made it through. Uh, if you think about the 90s and 60s and 70s, you know, JFK was assassinated, MLK was exa- assassinated, race uh, riots, uh, you know, uh, the, the world, you talk to people then, it, it felt like the world was coming apart at the seams. Um, both of these periods happened in the last 80, 90 years. Um, this is not hundreds of years ago. Um, and I would argue we would not be in the place we are on many levels, societally, economically, uh, in terms of freedom and advancement and all the other beautiful things that we have if we did not go through those two periods. Crisis, I want to reiterate, is essential to drive change and advancement. Uh, we have tried to avoid crisis at all costs in the short term. Um, we are having and we will go through some form of crisis in the next decade to 15 years, but it will drive us together. It will drive change. And it will, in my opinion, as long as we don't break, fall apart, uh, which I don't think we will, it will put us in a better place when we look forward in 20, 30 years. And it will be a pivotal time in our history. Um, But these things are important. uh, And and again, there's no quick, easy fix, right? Um, World War II was not an easy fix. The 60s and 70s and race riots were not an easy fix. They forced um, uh, dialogue. They forced uh, change. Um, and I believe we're going through a period of, of change and it won't be easy. But I think it is a positive in the long run that we're going through it now and not in 40 more years from now because that could be existential. Tim, Schumpeter I, I wrote a, could not have uh, said it better himself. <laughs> I, I wrote it. I think I'm about probably, I'm probably 
I don't know, seven to 10 years older than you. And, and, um, and I wrote a piece back in 2009 called, called Sirens in the Distance, which, which, which effectively made the same points, right? Yeah. Thinking that that, that crisis was going to be the catalyst that, that led to you know, what we're sort of observing here now, right? And was obviously gravely mistaken, right? Like you know, ten, 10 years on, but making the same points about the fact that you know, it's gonna drive us back to what's important. We're gonna have the crises that will drive us to make better decision-making for the long-term. Um, like all those major positives, I, I agree. And, and, and I'm rooting for this, for this one to be the, the one that does drive us in those productive directions, absolutely. It's, it's a process, even, you know, 2000, 2008, they drove, I mean, don't forget Occupy Wall Street and the Tea Party, like populism started a while ago. It just mm. took a while. It took uh, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, and it took um, kind of a, a process here domestically and internationally to kind of, uh, you know, it took COVID ultimately to a spark to kind of uh, to, to set off kind of uh, this fire. But um, we're still early in that process. Um, yeah. Change happens slowly. And then all of a sudden, right, once, you have to arrive absolutely. at a, at a tipping point and then there's a phase shift. And I think we're probably going through that phase shift where you want to call it a paradigm shift or people, some people like to quote uh, Neil Howell and the, the four turning, the, the, those kind of, yeah, yeah th those kinds of frameworks are useful to kind of wrap your heads around. But uh, yeah, I, I, I definitely see the silver lining. Uh, it's just that we have to get through the period and, uh, there's probably going to be uh, some amount of pain along the way. Yeah, yeah we need but leadership. On the other we need side. leadership, but I think it's an opportunity, um, and I think you know I'm hopeful that 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 will come. Agree, and a great place to leave it. John, Absolutely. Thank, thank you, you guys so much. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Where, where? Just let every. I'm sure everyone knows <laughs> where they can find you, Jim. Yeah, so uh, let's make sure they know where to find you point. because I'm yep. sure there's one or two listeners. No, yeah. I appreciate that. Uh, KaiVolatility.com is our website. You can uh, request. Uh, you know, we, we, we run a family of hedge funds. Um, uh, we, we like to put out regular kind of commentary about both market microstructure and macro structure as we kind of discussed here. So uh, you can subscribe to our kind of newsletters and, and uh, media that we do through there. Um, uh, so, so please reach out that way. Um, otherwise, at uh, jam underscore croissant uh, on Twitter, uh, you know, I, I go through periods where I'm pretty active and then periods where I'm a little busy, but, uh, but definitely a uh, good place to kind of hear my thoughts and, and engage with me. That's awesome. The boomers are outraged in the comments, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> we we, can blame we love the boomers that. too. He's the one that went after the boomers. <laughs> I love it. All right. All thanks right. guys. Thank you guys. That was wonderful. Again. Talk to you soon. Good weekend guys. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time. Most investors feel comfortable with their domestic equity and bond portfolios because they tend to thrive during periods of economic growth and low inflation. And we don't blame you. It's been a great ride. But it's a big world out there full of opportunities you may be ignoring. Sadly, we live in a world dominated by a fear of missing out, or FOMO. And in the last 10 years, U.S. equities and bonds have outperformed, 
and generated massive amounts of FOMO. This hasn't always been the case. In the mid-2000s, the best-performing markets were international equities, especially emerging markets, golden commodities. So what happens if growth collapses and inflation becomes the new norm? Or what if the U.S. dollar collapses and U.S. assets are no longer attractive? What will the new FOMO markets be? And will your portfolio keep up or be left behind? Enter Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund, ticker RDMIX, a strategy that is designed to thrive across different markets and economic regimes. Unlike most traditional strategies that keep allocation static and let volatility happen, Adaptive Asset Allocation applies a proprietary systematic process designed to dynamically transition toward thriving asset classes and eliminate those that are not, all the while aiming for consistent volatility and stable returns. There's almost always a bull market somewhere in the world. Don't let yesterday's FOMO get in the way of tomorrow's opportunities. Instead, let Adaptive Asset Allocation help you fill in your domestic portfolio gaps. To learn more, visit RationalMF.com and check out the Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund.